Okay, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to be reading a passage of scripture. God gives you four gifts as a Christian. After you've become a Christian, God gives you these wonderful four gifts. The first is the Bible, the Word of God, his instruction manual for living, and it's bread to us, it's food to us. Here's the second thing he gives us. He gives us his Holy Spirit who guides us and lives within us and gives us the power to live a Christian life. Here's the third thing that he gives us. A church community like this where we can belong and be encouraged and be stimulated and stirred and challenged to grow. And the fourth thing within that community is he gives us leaders. And this passage today is all about leadership within the church. And we're working through 1 Timothy, which is why we've come across these verses and we're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 21. And I want you to ask this question, what kind of leader should you be and what kind of leader should you follow? Because that's what Paul is talking about. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires, desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. I want you to imagine that you are attending a job interview. Let's suppose that you are a doctor applying for a consultant job or a teacher applying for a management position. Let's just suppose there were some doctors or teachers in King's Church. (laughs) Wouldn't that be an outrageous assumption to make? No. Or or any other job that you are applying for. Some kind of senior position. And you'd prepared your CV well, and you'd read it, sorry, your resume if you're American, and, and you read through it and you think, gosh, not only this is good, this is true. Everything written here is actually true, and it's a glowing CV. And you go confidently, you're well prepared for your interview, and you go in, and you can see that the panel, they're, they're just thumbing through your CV, and they're loving it. 
And then they close the CV and they push it to one side on their desk and uh, they just lean over the desk and one of them says, so, great CV. What we really want to know is, how's your marriage? You'd probably be thinking, I'm sure there's some law about not asking about these sorts of questions. But you might sort of fumble an answer and say, yeah, I think it's going pretty well. At least it was this morning when I left home. And uh, then one of them peers over his glasses and he says to you, no, what I mean is, are you being faithful to her? Is there anybody else we should know about? You'd think, well, this is a slightly awkward interview. Anyway, you, you fumble an answer. Question two. They say to you, you know what? We realized when, when your CV came in with your name and address, we realized that your kids must attend the same local school as some friends of ours kids do. So we asked our local friends, hey, do you know anything about this guy's kids? And the, the answer we got back, to be honest, wasn't great. They said that your kids were a bit of a handful. And do you have anything to say in this interview for this top management position about your kids? You should, I think, what's it got to do with you? Question three. Yeah, I mean, how often do you get drunk on average? <laughs> Question four. What's your approach to money? You know, if we were to, if this is how much you're going to get paid, how much of this are you going to spend on yourself? How much are you going to spend on your family? How much are you going to give away? We'd like to know some answers to these questions. I tell you, some of you have had some pretty difficult interviews in your life. But I bet that would be a pretty difficult interview to have. If somebody went that personal in your life, yet it's that kind of level of interest and interest in somebody's private life that Paul takes when he's talking about leadership within the church. He says, these things matter. These things are important. You see, we tend, in our culture, we tend to view things as being professional or private. I remember hearing a, a politician be interviewed a few years ago. He had just been exposed as having an affair, of, of committing adultery on his wife. And, and his response was simply, he said, he said, well, yes, but that's my private life. I'm a politician. I have a public life. You know, this is what I do in public. That's nobody's business. And we, if we're not careful, we can have that same approach to life. We can think, you know what, I'm, I have my work persona, I have my home persona, I have my Facebook profile, this is who I am with my friends. And one of the wonderful things that Jesus does when you become a Christian and he works in you by his spirit, he takes these multiple personalities and these different things that you are to different people and he makes you one person. And that person he makes you is more like Jesus Christ. And he's in the business of making you more consistent. Let me show you this picture here. I come from Worthing, uh, which is a seaside town. Let's hear it for seaside towns. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you come from a seaside town, you'll know that there is this little loved confectionery called a stick of rock. Nobody else does them because they're horrible. They break your teeth. But a stick of rock always has a bit of writing all the way through. So you have wording. Wherever you break this stick of rock, you get the same word appearing. I don't know how they do it. It doesn't look like they do it terribly well, to be honest. But wherever you break the rock, you get the same thing. God wants that to be your life as a Christian, that whoever touches you, whoever you meet, they get that consistency of character of who you are.
And there is a value that God lays down in church leadership all about consistency of character. And if you aspire to Christian leadership, especially eldership or senior leadership within church, then we need to take note of the criteria in this passage that we've read today. Let me say a couple of things. I'm going to look at four characteristics of church leaders that we're to look at. I want to just say a couple of points just in in passing, really. Firstly, is you'll see three different words in this passage used. You'll see the word elder, the word overseer, and the word deacon. And you might find that confusing. Just a very brief Bible study would show you that overseer and elder are exactly the same thing in the Bible. They're just One is a Greek word, one is a Jewish origin word. Elders were elders of the synagogue. Uh, the, the word overseer was used in the marketplace, in the workplace, to talk about people who had responsibility in those areas of life. So Paul brings those two things together when he talks about church leaders. Uh, he, in Acts chapter 20, he talks, he gathers the elders of the Ephesian church and he says, be shepherds of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's one and the same thing. So we're talking about two different roles here. Um, uh, overseer could also uh, the, the, word, the Greek word is episkopos it could mean bishop so you often hear that word in some church circles there was really only these two forms of leadership within local church life there was eldership and there was deacons deacons the Greek word is diakonos and deacons are best described as being go-betweens between elders and the work that needs doing or the people that need help. And so you could see them as agents or as messengers, people who are conferred with the full authority of eldership to do specific tasks within church life. So we're going to look at some of these things. The other passing comment I want to make is this, that you'll have probably noticed if you're tuned into these things that there was a lot of he's in the passage that we read today. And there's perhaps an underlying assumption in Paul's writing that the role of elders in particular is restricted to certain men within the church. I want to say, I'm not going to deal with that today. Uh, we're going to, Luke is going to do a whole message talking about leadership in the church and, and gender roles within that in two weeks' time. Um, so we're not going to get into that. We, we hold a... a, a a different position than our, our culture might do in this age, but we, we believe that's based in what God teaches in his word. So we're looking forward to that, and Luke will do a really good job with that. So here's the four things I want to say. Firstly, character matters more than competence. Secondly, care matters more than charisma. Thirdly, maturity matters. And fourthly, loving God not loving money. So character matters more than competence. Why is that? Why is this passage full of references to somebody's character rather than their gifting? There's only one item in this list, able to teach, which references somebody's ability to teach. Yet the truth is this, we're attracted to people who seem really gifted. Paul warns against that. says, actually, the people you should follow shouldn't just be gifted people. They should be people full of good character. And why is that? And I believe the answer is because Christian leadership at its heart is servant leadership. Leadership is never billed in the Bible as being the top of the tree. That's a worldly view of leadership. 
where you think, actually, what I'm trying to do is get to the top. It's the very fulfillment of self-actualization, where you think, if I get there, then I'll be free from all the stuff I don't want to do in life. I remember walking my son to school, one of his first days at school last year, and we were just walking along and, and just chatting, and he says, Dad, he says, when I grow up, I want to be king. I thought, I like his ambition. I like where he's going. And uh, I said, why do you want to be king? And he said, because then I'll have other people to carry the bags. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, it, here was my son, Ben, age six, and his view of what his life might look like perhaps under a different set of parents, in a different scenario, is this, that, I mean, don't get me wrong, don't report me to Childline or anything. We, we don't have our children working as baggage mules or anything. <laughs> we, you know, he, he was carrying his packed lunch to school on one of his first days, and it was clearly overwhelming for him. Because he thought, I wish somebody else would do this menial task for me. And that's the view of the world about leadership. I wish somebody else would do it. And if I get promoted high enough, then somebody else will do all the running around. Where does that come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from Satan. That's Satan's view of leadership. You find it in Isaiah chapter 14. But Isaiah notes that Satan says to God, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. Satan wasn't happy to serve as an angel. He said, no, I want to be top dog here. And the thing he completely failed to realize was that this God, who he thought was top dog, is the same God who would leave his throne and come from heaven to earth and would feed hungry people and live among poor people, who'd heal sick people. And the Bible says he humbled himself to to death, even death on a cross, the worst kind of death, because he wanted to serve humanity and to take away the sin of humanity by dying on a cross for us. That's the kind of God we serve. Leadership isn't to be top dog. It's not to be top of the ladder. It's to be bottom of the ladder. It's to be the servant of all. And that's the God that we serve. And that's what Christian leadership's to look like. Some of his disciples got the wrong end of the stick, so Jesus corrected them in Mark 9. He said, anybody who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Christian leadership is servant leadership. Here's some of the characteristics that we looked at. Paul calls this a noble task because it reflects Christ's care. He says the overseer must be above reproach. Just to say, this list that we read, there's nobody who will ever fulfill this list perfectly other than Jesus. Because this isn't talking about perfection, this is talking about generality as a principle, the kind of people that you should follow and the kind of people you should be if you're going to lead. Above reproach, meaning blameless reputation, observable to outsiders. Temperate, not a hothead. Self-control, that is that you're internally disciplined. If you're going to be a leader, you're often going to be spending time by yourself, thinking, praying. You need to be disciplined. Respectable. Seen by outsiders as being a decent person of good reputation, not given to drunkenness. He doesn't forbid drinking, he says it's okay to drink, but we must keep our wits about us. There's a couple of pilots who got arrested at Edinburgh Airport a couple of months ago. Do you see that story? Because they were about to board a transatlantic flight and they'd been drinking heavily. 
And they thought, well, this will make for a fun flight. Now, rightly, they'll go to jail for that because they're putting hundreds of lives at risk. And Paul says, well, if you're going to be a Christian leader, then don't be a drunk, don't be an addict. Because you need to lead people free of those things. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Gentle, dealing with people, not ranting. Not getting physical with people. Not argumentative for the sake of winning. We've all been in those arguments where it feels good just to land that crucial blow. Politicians do it all the time. They say that final word. And and who cheers at the end of their final punchline? Their own team. And the other team is just like, no. See, what feels clever in arguments to us doesn't actually work. We need to be people who are gentle and put forth opinions in a gentle manner. Character matters more than competence. It's always God's way. Here's the second thing. Leaders should be caring, not just charismatic. He puts attention... He puts under the spotlight, if you're going to be a leader, he says, well, let's take a look at your family. He says he must be faithful to his wife, hospitable, managing his own family well, seeing that his children obey him. Now, these verses, I don't believe at all, forbid single people or those without children from leading within the church. I don't think that's the point he's making. The point is this, that there must be a primary sphere of care that must be seen in a potential leader's life where people can say, I see it. I see how they're doing a a, a level of care with their family or in some other sphere where where we can totally see how that could be reflected in church life. God is a caring God. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. When Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, he used the metaphor of shepherding to describe what they must do. And we get the English word pastor from the Latin word for shepherd. Shepherd. So shepherds, our pastors, our overseers, our elders, they're all the same thing. A leader should be faithful to his wife. Or if you're reading the ESV, it'll say husband of one wife or man of one woman in the footnote. It's not a reference to being polygamous or not being polygamous. What it's saying is that it should be somebody of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his spouse faithful to marriage vows, a devoted married person. The leader should be hospitable, opening up their home to others, in particular to strangers. The word here for hospitality means uh, love for strangers. In that uh, setting, there were no hotels and things, so if you had Christian ministry coming through town, it would be expected that the leader of the church, no, well, come and stay with us. As long as you need a house, you can use ours. Managing his own family and children well. Here's the big idea, that leaders have two spheres of care. Their own home and the church. And one is the training ground for the other. Now, the Bible lifts up these two gifts, which are both of equal value. One is the gift of singleness, and one is the gift of marriage. And they're both blessed states from God. If you're single here today, that's a blessed state from God. If you're married here today, that's a blessed state from God. Both of those states of life have challenges to them. And it's easy when you're in one stage of life to to, to feel that the other half has it easier in some way. 
But the truth is both of those things have challenges. Singleness has one set of challenges, but has the advantages of, in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, of sincere devotion to Christ. The flexibility of being able to, to, to give your full attention to loving Jesus and not having to worry about family life. Marriage is a blessing, but has another set of challenges. What Paul seems to say here is that it's a, it's a training ground, and it's a brutal training ground on how to lead God's family. And just as parents learn how to, to shepherd their children, so those skills can be transferred also into the life of the church. It's a managing, it's a leading role, it's a shepherding role. It's about helping people make good choices. It's not just about uh, giving somebody a, a prayer when they're feeling down. It's about helping people proactively think about their life and where they're going. I remember as a, um, a, few, a couple of months ago, my son Sam had, has just taken up rugby and he's totally loving it. And his friends to him who also play rugby said, you know, why don't you come and join our Sunday lunchtime rugby club? And, and, and Sam would dearly love to do that. He thinks, I just love rugby, I love my friends. And so he's chatting to us about it, and Julie and I just chatted with him. He said, well, trouble is, Sam, that's just not going to work, is it? Because as a family, we go to church on a Sunday, we have people back for lunch, and, and, and he's totally fine about it, because the good news is that because we have brilliant children's work here, brilliant youth workers here, our children love coming to church. So he's like, no, totally right. He said, I don't want to miss church, do I? So here's the thing, you're shepherding, you're helping people make decisions before they go too far down a thing where they, they, they get, get stuck and they can't get back easily. Helping people make good choices. Thirdly, mature, not necessarily masters in theology, but mature, able to teach, loving the Bible and being able to explain it to people. Not necessarily in a public setting, although some will be gifted to do that, but so that you can give good counsel to people. So when somebody says to you, hey, you know what, I've been offered this job in this city, in this place, in a different town, your first response isn't just to go through the practicalities of it, but it's to give the counsel of God. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about the decisions we make in life? What does the Bible say about involvement in church community? Have you looked at the church situation where you're going? Have you looked at that? Have you, looked at, uh, have you heard from God on it? The Bible speaks about being led by the Holy Spirit. Do you feel like God's leading you in this area? Being able to articulate biblical things so people can make good decisions is a role of a good leader. Not a recent convert because you need to have uh, enough maturity to be able to tell people what the Bible says. Fourthly, loving God, not loving money. False teachers in Paul's setting use the word of God to peddle profit. People were seeking out ministry positions because they were finding it financially lucrative. To be able, I don't know how it was working. Maybe they were asking for offerings from the people and, and they were personally receiving all of that. And Paul is very concerned about this. So he's writing to Timothy about it. And he says, the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Here's the issue. If you have leaders who love money, they will not love Jesus. 
Because Jesus said you can't love both God and money. He said, here's the danger. If you, if you have a, a, an elder who's just materialistic and just pursuing gain in this life, then they're not going to lead people to Jesus, which is the whole point of what you're meant to do as a leader. And he gives responsibility in two ways. He gives personal responsibility to the person. He says, well, keep your lives free from the love of money. Make sure that you're being generous. It's not to do with how much you have. It's your attitude to, to money that's being called into account. But there's also a responsibility that I want you to see that God gives the church in chapter 5 that we read earlier. And he says, he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, for do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. What he's saying is this, that Church, I want you to have responsibility for caring for and providing for the leaders of your church. And there's been a history in some churches, thankfully not kings, but some churches across the world where people's approach to trying to keep their leaders' lives free from the love of money is to not pay them enough to live on. And the big idea is this, that if we don't pay them enough, then they'll have to trust God. In actual reality, the opposite is true because if it's somebody who's trying to run a family and run a church and they don't have enough money, then what are they supposed to do? So Paul is saying, if somebody's doing a good job, then pay them to do the job. Make sure that they're cared for and provided for. And as an elder of kings and somebody who's uh, paid by the church, let me just say I'm so thankful. And I, I know I'd speak for the others for the provision of this church, for the trustees here. And the great job they do in terms of just making sure we're well provided for for the work that we do. He says, don't muzzle the ox. That was a, a reference to uh, oxes would push the grinding mill around and around. And what would normally happen is that the ox would be able to just bend down and eat some of the, the grain that he'd ground. Paul says, of course you wouldn't put a muzzle on and just make the poor animal just go round and round and not give it any kind of replenishment. He said, of course you wouldn't do that. He says, in the same way, don't be mean. Be caring for those who lead and those who work for the church. So, final comment. That's the four things. So, not loving money, maturity, caring, not just charismatic, and character more than competence, at the very start, it just takes us back to that first verse, which says, the one who desires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That, that word desire, the, the Greek word, it means this, the one who stretches themselves out to be an overseer. And let me say this to you as, as somebody who wants to see you grow in leadership, both men and women here that there's a stretching out that has to be done. Leadership never feels comfortable. It's always nerve-wracking. You're always asking yourself that question, should I really be doing this? And the truth is this, there's a stretching out, there's a sacrifice. But when you stretch out, God is with you. And Jesus himself stretched himself out on our behalf. He stretched himself out on the cross 
so that he could lead us into an eternity with God. And today, if you're not a Christian here, then I want to say that God's loving leadership of your life is this, that he wants to lead you to know him. And he wants to lead you to the cross of Jesus. And he wants to lead you to a place of forgiveness and a place of relationship with him. So if that is you, I'd love to chat to you afterwards. I think, otherwise, I think we're just going to finish things there. Why don't we just pray together and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. Lord, we want to say thank you for your loving leadership over our lives. Thank you that you're our good shepherd. Thank you that you always provide for us and care for us. Thank you for all the way that you've provided and cared for us both personally and within the life of King's Church over many years. Lord, I want to thank you for the uh, provision of finance. I want to pray that you'd continue to meet all of our needs. Lord, we want to pray that you'd keep helping us as a community to grow in these things of loving your word, loving the spirit, loving this community, and loving leadership. Help those here, Lord, who feel a call to leadership. I pray that you'd grow that in them and develop that in them. And I pray for those who do lead here, Lord, whether that's elders or in any other role, I want to pray, Lord, for your grace to be upon us and help us to be faithful and diligent with the calling we've received. In Jesus' name, amen.